My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Chris Voss is a former lead FBI negotiator who debunks the biggest myths of negotiation. Chris has lectured on negotiation at business schools across the country and has been seen on ABC, CBS, CNN, and Fox News. Chris has also been featured in Forbes, Time, Fast Company, and Inc. Chris's keynotes are based on his book, Never Split the Difference, which has sold more than 3 million copies in 33 languages. I hope you enjoy learning from Chris Voss today, because I always do. Chris, it's so great to chat today. Five years ago, I was flying to South Bend, Indiana to teach negotiation to MBA students at Notre Dame. I'd never taught negotiation. I was wondering, how am I ever going to do this? And I started listening to a podcast with you. You gave me so much insight, so much inspiration and motivation. I've been a big fan ever since then, so it's great to connect today. Thanks. I appreciate that. I'm really I'm really happy that uh, I've helped. All right. Uh, Chris, that sounded a little bit like the FM DJ voice, which maybe we'll get into at some point today. Uh, you have a very soothing voice. Uh, we'll probably get into tone, but uh, going back a few years, how did you first become a hostage negotiator? Well, I was originally on SWAT. I was FBI SWAT Pittsburgh and then got transferred to New York and was trying out for the FBI's hostage rescue team, which is the Bureau's equivalent of the Navy SEALs, and re-injured my knee and liked crisis response, you know, and I knew that we always sent the SWAT guys out with the or the hostage negotiators out with the SWAT guys. And I thought, you know, I could do that. How hard could it be? And I tried to, uh, so then I presented myself to the head of the negotiation team in New York and was summarily rejected. And she, so uh, persistence, you know, I figured there's always a way if you're willing to learn and work. I said, what can I do? And she said, volunteer on a suicide hotline. And I found myself at helpline a crisis hotline in New York. And that kind of started the whole journey. And it, it gave me, that was learning empathy and emotional intelligence before the term was coined. And it gave me competitive advantage in everything that I did. Crisis hotline, a hostage negotiator. I love this phrase. How hard could it be? <laughs> yeah, my son and I have always joked that there's probably two unofficial Voss family mottos. One is how hard could it be, which is, uh, you know, they say that it's close to the rednecks uh, famous last words. Hey, watch this. You know, <laughs> you never know what you're really getting into. And then uh, the other the other phrase, if anything worth doing is worth doing at night in the dark, because my father used to always work us well after sundown. <laughs> it reminds me of a phrase that a friend of mine adopted who he uh, has become a very successful um business person and uh, wildly successful, more than anybody would have ever anticipated. And, and the, his motto was, we kind of developed it together, but I think he just rolled with it, was might as well. You know, how hard could it be? Might as well. You know, you want to be might a hostage well. negotiator? Might as well. Yeah, find out, right? Jump in, see, see how bad it is. Okay, so what was the most high stakes negotiation you've ever had? Uh, you know, there's a matter of relative definition there. I mean, as an FBI hostage negotiator, you start working international kidnappings. You're going up against some really bad guys, some some really bad Bond villains, if you will. And just by nature of uh, the first time I worked a case where somebody got killed, you know, my boss, Gary Nessner, had, had used the phrase all the time, best chance of success. Not guaranteed success, best chance of success. And uh, I also knew that hostage negotiator success rate was about 93%, which meant once you start climbing over double digits, you're just starting to run against the odds. And so, uh, you know, you're going to work cases. You're not going to quit. You're not going to give up. Things are going to go bad. So there were different times and different cases where people died. And uh, anybody that died, the stakes are always really as high as they could be for anybody with families. So it's hard to say which one was higher than another. Do you have uh, any high profile cases that come to mind when you think of like the prototypical 
uh, hostage negotiation case that you may work? Well, that I worked or that, that existed? I mean, uh, How about most, you, worked? you know, most fortunately, you know, of course, based on also the batting average, most of the people that I worked lived, you know, if it, if yeah. it, if it, the media's phrase, if it bleeds, it leads. You know, you work a you work a high profile case and nobody gets killed. You know the media doesn't pick it up. You do some great work, nobody gets killed. The media doesn't care. You know what's going on in Gaza right now. Back in two thousand five, I worked a case in Gaza. Steve Santani, Fox journalist, we got him and his cameraman out. You know nobody cared. It was a great case, but he lived. It wasn't sexy. Wow. Um, it was a great case. I worked a case in the Philippines, Burnham Sabaro case. Two out of three Americans in, in that case got killed. That got some attention at the time because they got killed. So, um, you know, there were few. It's, <laughs> it's There's some heartbreak along the line for the people back in a hostage negotiation days. You know, that's interesting. I guess it's, I never thought of this before, but it's kind of like being a great cornerback in football, right? You, you probably don't want to get noticed. You probably, in some regards, you don't want the publicity because Maybe that means that the, the case didn't turn out as you'd hoped. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm a great cornerback in football. You're doing a good job. They're not throwing at you because they're scared mm -hmm. to go your way. You know, they're trying to score on somebody else. And yeah, by and large, yeah, and, and, and you know, if I, if I go off on a tangent a little bit on the thing in Gaza right now, when it first got started, um, some of the families through second and third intermediaries were reaching out to see if, you know, I could help. And it's in State Department's hands and the people working for Biden are doing as good as, good as can be done. But they were like, uh, you know, there's kind of a famous Israeli case, uh, uh, Israeli service soldier that got it after he was deceased. They exchanged his body and got a bunch of Palestinians out, Gilad Shalat, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name. And they said, well, the family's working with this guy in the Gilad Shalat case. And I'm like, yeah, okay, well, you know, several hundred Palestinians got out. I'm not sure that's something that you want to brag about. Uh, and and then also, I, and, and, and even talking about this is, there's two sides to every story. And uh, no, uh, to quote, quote Bill Clinton, no side has a monopoly on virtue or tears. So for me to talk about Palestinians who got out of jail, that doesn't presuppose that they deserve to be there in the first place. Yeah, interesting. Okay, well, uh, you've you've done a lot of um, your expertise has led you into business negotiations as well. So, uh, yeah. as you think about the differences between hostage negotiation and business negotiation, what are some of the main differences and and similarities between the two? Well, um, humans make uh, decisions along the same criteria, no matter what situation they're in. Uh, and that, that was one of the first lessons from crisis intervention, crisis negotiation, into business negotiation. You're dealing with human beings that are fundamentally wired the same way. Um, it's, you know, there's something called the limbic system in your brain. And no matter who you are, gender, ethnicity, religion, geography, diet, the limbic system is very universal, like your respiratory system. Every human being on earth has the same same respiratory system, lungs, heart, circulatory system. Every human being on earth has the same limbic system. So um, all, all the lessons from hostage negotiation apply to business negotiation because it's people making decision and stresses the eye of the beholder. Uh, the title of the book is negotiating, you know, never split the difference negotiating as if your life depended on it. Well, people in business are negotiating as if their livelihoods depended on it. So by and large, um, they're going to dealing with negativity is the first rule of the game to get people into a state where they can make better decisions. Um, they're going to make a decision based on what their future looks to them, like to them. Loss thinks twice as much as an equivalent gain. People are more likely to make a decision to avoid a loss than they are to accomplish a gain. The, the neuroscience behind the tone of voice, you know, you observed a moment ago, my late night FM DJ mm -hmm. voice. Because hostage negotiators are trained to use that all the time, the, uh, the big difference is hostage negotiations tend to be calmer. Like you hear more stories of business deals getting emotionally out of control, people telling their own team, I'm going to blow this deal up. We're going to teach them a lesson. We're going to storm out of there. You know, that's... <laughs> That happens in business negotiations far more in hostage yeah. negotiations. We calm things down earlier because 
the neuroscience behind a calming, soothing voice puts people in better decision-making positions. Well, let's just go there then with tone, okay? So how are you thinking about tone when you're in a negotiation? Well, by and large, really, um, I'm, I'm trying to be a little more playful. The more I'm on a playful side, we'll both think better and we'll both think together more. Uh, there's our Harvard psychologist has this great TED talk, Sean Acker. I think it's the happy secret to better work where he says uh, you're 31% smarter in a positive frame of mind. Hmm. So by being playful, I'm smarter, significantly smarter. And emotions tend to be contagious. So I don't want to be second mover in the emotional dance. If I want you to be playful, I'm going to be playful first. If I want you to be calm, I'm going to be calm first. It's going to work on both of us equally well. So I will soothe and smile and joke around. And the chances that we reach a great deal together, just based on my approach, my tone of voice, playfulness, uh, self-effacing humor is another way to look at tactical empathy. Uh, we're going to make better deals just based on my tone of voice. Now, I think that's really interesting because it seems like we have this notion of negotiation that, you know, we need to be very tough Combat, and kind of like alpha and, you know, never show weakness. Uh, but it sounds like that's not always your approach or the approach that you were taught or employ. Well, and it's, it's how you package it in your brain. Like there's great power in deference. Some people are afraid of being deferential. I am going to seem weak. There's tremendous power in deference. You know, there's a difference between what is weakness versus what is just likability. Um, I don't know that anybody would accuse Oprah of being weak. Yeah. She may be the strongest negotiator on earth based on the distance that she covered and continues to cover. And she's really nice. You know, you, you, you don't, you don't, there are any pictures of her yelling at anybody or there aren't any stories of her kicking a chair across the room and she's, and, and there's no stories. Her past is not littered with enemies. Like what, you know, one of my favorite negotiations of, of Oprah's and there are many, um, uh, her interview of Lance Armstrong, who, who I've run into and I know Lance and, and I like Lance a lot. And there's a lot about him that I admire. Like they negotiated that interview. He was not caught off guard by any single question that she asked him, you're going to go on camera and you're going to come clean for the first time on everything. That was a negotiation. The commodity was his answers in that conversation. Mm -hmm. And you don't hear Lance Armstrong badmouth on Oprah. And when you hear him talking about his history, there are some people with good reason that he feels betrayed by. And there are other people that stood by him. And, but he, you know, if you, he, you don't hear him complain about Oprah and Oprah didn't steamroll him, didn't kick a chair across the room, you know? So what is weakness is really in the eye of the beholder. Really interesting that we so often can confuse deference and likability with weakness. Right. And that just makes me think, you know, what other common mistakes or common misconceptions do people have about negotiation? Yeah, you know, um, uh, it's a great question. A lot of them. And, and what springs to mind quick is, you know, the apology. I'm sorry. I, um, I'm i sorry afterwards. Um, you know, you slap somebody in the face, you fail somebody, you say I'm sorry afterwards. I, we don't prescribe that. The, the term I'm sorry in and of itself is not, is not bad. Not, if I'm getting ready to be assertive, I'm going to say I'm sorry. You're not going to like what I have to say. I'm sorry. I'm afraid. I can't do that. You know, that doesn't make the words, I'm sorry, weakness. What it does is it makes it actually respectful because I'm warning you the bad news is coming. So there's there's a tremendous misconception in uh, uh, very old style bargaining, you know, knuckle dragon negotiation that apologies are weakness. They're not. It, 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 it quite often is respect and deference and emotional intelligence. You know, that's just, that's just for starters. Um, you know, there's this style of negotiation of black swan method, tactical empathy. We've got experience that women pick it up faster than men on a regular basis. It doesn't mean that women are any better at it, 
at the top end, it's gender neutral, gender agnostic. But we do see women pick this up quicker than men on a regular basis. So what does that have to do with your question? I often get asked if women are penalized for negotiation, for negotiating on their own behalf. Women get penalized more than men do for bad negotiation. You know, for being the biggest jerk in a room negotiation, uh, a man can get away with that and a woman will be penalized for it more than a man will. But I don't teach that style of negotiation, so that's not my problem. So many of the stereotypes about women in negotiation really have to do much more with uh, bad negotiation advice. Really interesting. Uh, another question that that makes me think about is how many negotiation courses start is with anchoring and the importance of anchoring and going uh, right. first. What's your take on that? Yeah, it's, I hate leaving money on the table. And, and what anchoring does is when it works, uh, people can point to a victory in the moment. Uh, and people ignore that it's a very low percentage success rate. Like, first of all, it has a tendency to drive deals from the table when you anchor too extremely. Um, it, it leaves a bad taste in the other side's mouth when you grab it with both hands. It's a recipe for a short-term relationship. And so that's to start with. You drive deals away from the table and you lose money as a result. Now, if you anchor improperly, anchor too low. Uh, there was a student in my class at Georgetown that thought he was being very demanding when he asked for $110,000 salary. He was very proud of himself when he got into the company. He talked to somebody that had been hired for essentially the same deal as him. And, uh, you know, he said to the other guy, what do you think of the compensation? And the one guy says, you know, we're all getting compensated the same. He goes, on, 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 on. He said, uh, I negotiated my own deal, you know, and he didn't tell the other guy he was making 110, but he was very proud of himself for that. But he said, I negotiated my own deal. And the other guy said to him, you're making more than $125,000. I mean, he anchored low. <laughs> and the other side just let him walk right into it. So he left money on the table. So it's, uh, it, it's the percentages are not good for, for extreme anchoring. And there are a lot of people that are tell you that they're there. And I can tell you exactly where the flaw in their data is, no matter who they are. Well, I think a lot of this research on anchoring, for example, is it has been examined in a lab in a very sterile environment. And so people teach like, oh, this is the way to capture the most value, but it's not looking at complex negotiations, long-term relationships, neg negotiations over time. And I think that's that may be part of where this kind of notion is that anchoring is kind of the most important, you know, strong anchoring is the most important technique in negotiation. And it, it sounds like, according to your perspective, this is maybe some of the worst advice people get. There's, there's two of them out there that have highly flawed, academically rigorous studies behind them. And you pointed out exactly what the issue is. They were done in a lab, if you will. And the first one is anchoring and the other is using strategic umbrage. And they were done in artificial situations. And I can tell you exactly why the data was wrong. You're doing artificial and lab negotiations. What a lot of people don't realize is students in all negotiation courses and assigned negotiation, and I taught negotiation and experienced it. Here's what happens. They sit down one time. They talk for somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour. And in their view, the only way they failed is if they don't make a deal and there's no subsequent relationship. It's a one-off. Yeah. So they don't care what the deal looks like as long as they have a deal. And somebody extreme anchors and the other side goes like, look, the only way I fail is if I don't make a deal at 45, 50 minutes they're looking at their watch, they're like, okay, where are we? And they cut the deal. And it, with anchoring and strategic umbrage, those are exactly the conditions that those studies were done. When I think of anchoring, I think of Donald Trump. And uh, I, I realize that many of the kind of outrageous statements he makes are, are just him anchoring. So for example, the one that comes right. to mind is, you know, uh, we're going to build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. Now, that's <laughs> that's an extreme anchor. So from a negotiation perspective, you see that and you see, oh, he's he's anchoring. But to your point, what does that do to people's perception of him and the ability to do business? It you know, it's it's a strategic choice he's making. But I think there are, there's some serious consequences to throwing down such a strong anchor like that. Yeah, and well, and first of all, in Mexico, never came to the table. Yeah. And so, you know, they stood back and then U.S. resources got devoted to that wall. Now, whether or not the wall should be built is a wholly separate question. 
but who is going to pay for it? And another one, another Donald Trumpism that a lot of people have forgotten, Chelsea Piers in New York City, phenomenal, phenomenal real estate development. I mean, one of the more gorgeous real estate developments. A lot of people forget that much of the property that was built on was owned by Donald Trump through all the 80s and the 90s. Now, at that point in time, he put up Trump Tower, spectacular success, renovated Grand Central Station uh, and, and the Grand Hyatt there, spectacular success. Fix a woman skating rink. I'm, I'm in New York at the time. Spectacular success on the heels of dismal New York City failures. And so he's sitting on the West Side Railroad Yards and he's got this great development in mind, tallest building in the world. But he had extreme anchored, kick chairs across the room, offended so many people that everybody that he needed cooperation from refused to participate and allow him, even against their best interests, the community groups, the builders, Everybody was ultimately aligned against him. He hung on to that property for years, and it was an empty yard, West Side Railroad Yards. Probably remained undeveloped for well over 20 years just because he was attached to it. When he finally sold out a share, it has turned into one of the most beautiful, most remarkable real estate developments in Manhattan. And that's what happens to the extreme anchor guy. Pretty soon, people are so worn out that they just don't engage anymore and until somebody else comes along and makes a better deal and enough time goes by, nobody knows that what really happened in this story, what held Chelsea Pierce back from a development for years was because Donald Trump was involved and nobody would do business with him. Yeah, so this just makes me think another problem with maybe some of the academic approach to negotiating is the goal is to just win by as much as possible, right? And it's kind of assumed that whoever wins the most, like whatever technique they use, that's the best one. In your experience, what's the problem with winning by too much in a negotiation? Yeah, well, you develop the reputation that every deal you make, the other side loses. And then people stop dealing with you. Um, I, when I went to Harvard Law School's negotiation course as a student, I went to as a student as a teacher. I show up as a student with Harvard Law School students, no matter what you think, no matter where your perceptions are, some of the smartest people on planet Earth. I'm there, you know, as I am a, a hostage negotiator, average dude from Iowa, you know, barely a, a B average from Iowa State University. I'm utterly unqualified academically to be there. And I'm using my hostage negotiation bargaining skills and slaughter. I mean, taking them to the cleaners. So two or three of the 13 negotiations we do into this, the reputation gets around that if you make the deal with Voss, he's going to kill you. Not only is he going to kill you, you're probably going to be held up for ridicule because everybody's going to find out. So the next two or three negotiations after that, I sit down with these Harvard Law School students and they just stare at me. They don't even speak. They won't say a word. They, you know, no deal is better than getting embarrassed and total yeah. deadlocks two or three times after that. Now, how does that apply to the real world? Shortly after I get out, I'm advising a CEO in the Boston area, and he's telling me, I got a deal on my table that the CEO on the other side has been there and agreed to every single term, eyes wide open, full participant in every term. He won't sign the deal because... I have such a reputation in my industry of always winning that he thinks the moment he signs a deal, his board is going to fire him because if he agreed with me, by definition, he lost. And that's what happens to the people that have the big wins. Pretty soon, fewer and fewer wins, fewer and fewer far between. They're not bragging about the deal they made last month. They're now two years out from the big win. Now they're three years. Now they're five years because nobody wants to sit down with them. Yeah, this long-term perspective, I think, is is so valuable to think about. And I love your uh, kind of emotional intelligence approach of let's find a deal. You know, the win-win the phrase, it comes to mind, of course, but let's do something that works for both of us and can allow us to do business together in the future. Uh, another question, are, are people in more negotiations than they realize, do you think? <laughs> you know, uh, negotiation is probably engaged uh, with uh, the word hello. Uh, you know, anytime I want or I need is in your brain or in the other person's brain, you're in a negotiation. And the commodity that is always involved 
the people really realize is time. If I'm trying to get you to do something, it's a negotiation. If I'm in a Starbucks and you don't like the way I order the coffee, God knows what they're pouring in the back. On a regular basis, they're giving me decaf <laughs> instead of caffeinated. And I've I've told a story in that line so many times. I've had a lot of people that were former waiters and waitresses in restaurants. They say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If somebody's been in for dinner and they've been a jerk all night and they ask us for decaf at the end of the night, we load them down with caffeine. <laughs> so all these, all these interactions are all around us on a regular basis. And as soon as you see them, your life accelerates because so much friction is involved in an ask if it's done in an emotionally unintelligent way. You know, I've, I've taken the friction out of my life in so many ways by just knowing how to ask. So how do you save time with empathy? Um, you know, I anticipate what your reaction is going to be, and then I try to inoculate you from it. For example, even if I'm going to get the deal, I never know when I have a secondary ask. I'm, I'm, I'm getting in line at an airport the other day. You know, they, I fly constantly. I almost live on a plane. So I'm automatically upgraded to business class. So I'm, I'm, I'm checking in uh, at the Delta uh, priority line. I got my director of operations with me. She's not flying business. She ain't supposed to be in line with me. You know, the economy line is like 3000 people long and there are two in our line. So I, I want to, I want to check her in and I need some help. I need four or five things from the lady behind the counter. I don't need her pushing back. So I walk up to her anticipating a negative reaction. I look at her and say, I'm getting ready to be horrible. And she, she kind of sits back and she goes, she goes, what? And I go, and I point to my director of operations. I'm like, well, this is my director of operations. She's not even supposed to be in this line. And she's not even on my flight. And she looks at me and she goes, that's not being horrible. That's it being a gentleman. He, she checks her right in. No questions asked. Puts her in, puts priority tags on her luggage that are not supposed to be there. Just because I've anticipated the possible friction in advance. And we're getting extra. And, and on top of that, and I, I fly so much, I'd forgotten where I was going. And she goes, now that we got her checked in, where are you going? And I go, I don't know. Ask her. Because <laughs> I even had the wrong city. I was flying it. I thought I was flying to Florida and I was flying to Texas instead. So we get in there quick, no muss, no fuss. And we also leave this lady behind the counter in a better mood. I mean, she laughed with us. She joked with us. So even if she'd have done all that for us anyway, I left some positive karma in the universe for the next person. So I created less friction for the next person in line, too. You know, you can imagine there's a number of ways that you could have approached that. And it seems like kind of the, maybe people's gut instinct or intuition for how to do this is, you know, okay, I'm Chris Voss. I fly all the time. Let me go throw my weight around with, you know, this gate agent. Right. How's that, that going to go? How's that going to be received? Yeah, even if I get my way, she's going to drag her feet. She's going to take her time. I might not get the right tags on my bag. You know, there's all these tiny little ways that friction could be added or it could go wrong. And there's even if I get my way, there's four or five things that got to go smoothly here. And I don't, I don't need any of them to go sideways. You know, you know, who knows how my baggage treated gets thrown on a conveyor belt. You know, there's so many little things to implementation with the other side that at the end of the day, even if I get them all, I do not want to create any negative karma in the universe. Cause maybe the person standing in the line behind me, if I'm a jerk throwing my weight around, maybe they're sitting next to me on the airplane. Yeah. You know, I have, uh, if they're, if they're close to me in line, there's a pretty good chance they might be checking on, on my flight. I'm going to cross paths with this negative, the negative karma that I'm creating in a moment is probably going to catch up with me again someplace else. And I'm, you know, I anticipate that nothing is a one-off and that there are all sorts of observers around me all the time. So throwing your weight around is just not a great way to, to, to decrease your overall friction in your life. So what do you call this technique where you walk up and it's almost like you're setting her up for something really bad and making her think that, you know, she's going to deal with a real problem. Then she finds out like, oh, this isn't a big problem. And just that little shift like makes her eager to help you. Like, is there a name for this technique or how, how do you think about that? You know, that's a, it's a, it's a version of what we call the accusations audits. 
And there, there are negative emotions that either will exist or are highly predictable. And you deactivate negative emotions by calling them out. And you actually inoculate from negative emotions by calling them out in advance, which is very counterintuitive. Yeah, It's the difference between denying a negative and just calling it out. Like if I say to you, I don't want you to think I'm going to be disrespectful. You're going to be like, ah, oh, here it comes. And then as soon as I'm disrespectful, your reaction is going to be like, I knew it. I knew yeah. you were going to be a jerk. Not to be rude, not, but. Yeah, exactly. Not to be rude. And if, if I would, that, but if instead I was going to say like, look, this is going to sound rude. And I hesitate for about a second. You're going to imagine that I'm like, you're going to be very insulting. And whatever I say, you're going to be like, oh, that wasn't that bad. As a matter of fact, that was really respectful. And I'll know that was eminently predictable. And I'll know that that secondary emotion, you know, the last impression is the one that colors everything going forward until I make another impression. So I know where this is going and I will deactivate and protect you from negative emotions that are eminently predictable. Yeah, this is brilliant because our intuitions are so often wrong and we just want to, we, we don't want to address the elephant in the room, elephant. but by addressing the elephant in the room, we actually get the thing that we want and everybody's better off for it. Yeah. People see us, and uh, people see us as straight shooters, you know, and we don't like people who are blunt because then it seems harsh, but we love straight shooters. Now what's the difference between somebody's blunt, somebody's a straight shooter. Somebody who's a blunt just hits you in the face with the truth and just doesn't yeah. care how it lands. Somebody's a straight shooter still tells you the truth, but they soften it. You know, they warn you it's coming. They alter their tone of voice so you don't feel slapped in the face. And you want somebody to tell you the truth. You just don't want it to feel like you're getting hit in the face with a brick when it happens. So if you're at Harvard, you know, you're this, you know, kid from small town, Midwest, Iowa, and, right. and now you find yourself in Harvard and you're about to lecture, you know, these really bright students. Are there ways that you can use this technique to disarm them? Yeah, well, if and we do this on a regular basis, and it's not just at Harvard. I, you know, I'm going to say, look, like I'm just going to seem like some stupid schmuck from Iowa. You know, I'm I'm a small town kid who barely got a B, and you're going to at some point in time you're going to ask yourself, what does this guy got to teach me anyway? All this stuff is is really predictable, so I'll I'll throw it out up front. Um, you know, my son who uh, helped me found the company, helped me grow it, has gone out on his own now because he's as independent as I am. Um, he used to say when he stood up in front of people, like, you know, some of you have got shoes that are older than me. You know, you're going to ask yourself, what's this kid who's, you know, uh, you're going to, this kid, the only, his only claim to fame is his, that he's Voss's son. He's got nothing else to say for himself because he's so young. And they'll be like, oh, all right, look, this dude's honest. Let's hear yeah. what he has to say. So there's, there's all these different anticipatory versions of how anybody can apply that in, in, in their regular life. What's the other side going to say about you? Call it out uh, fearlessly in advance. And, and what, do you, what do you call this technique again? What's the name of it? Well, it's the accusations audit. What are the accusations that the other side is likely or possibly make against you or somebody that looks like you? Do an audit, do an inventory, like, a, like an accountant. It's audit what these possibilities are. Even a ridiculous one, insane, crazy. What are they saying about you to each other when they're drinking a beer late at night? What are they whispering? And then, you know, run that audit, make a list. There's always about three or four or five that are predictable. And call them out in advance. And it, it's incredibly, it, it's the single most powerful strategy in the Black Swan method. And we got a bunch of stuff that works really well. And collectively we've always agreed the accusations audit is the biggest game changer it's not the only one out there yeah but on a regular basis it's the biggest game changer you know just hearing that story of you dealing with the uh work at the airport you can just see how brilliant it is and how you're just so more likely to get what you want by taking that approach so speaking of different techniques how about the mirror technique what is the mirror technique and how do you use that how do you use it yeah the 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 mirror technique. Oh, uh, and please forgive me. That was very rude. I just mirrored you. You know, it's, <laughs> it's just a repetition of the three words of what somebody's just said. Um, it's it's kind of an interesting neuroscientific connector. 
it's better, it, it works better in place of what did you mean by that? Can you please go on? It's just a, it's a very simple repetition of the last one to three-ish words of what somebody's just said. Um, once you've learned how to repeat the last one to three-ish words, it could be one word, shouldn't really be more than five. You can pick different portions of a conversation to guide someone. Uh, what it really does is communicate to the other person. I heard what you said, and I still didn't get it. So I kind of need to take the same thought and say it in another way. But it just lands so much more effectively than that, that the, the mirror technique, it's not the body language technique. It's just a repetition of one to three-ish words, usually the last words, but can be selected words. And it's a great conversation lubricant and expander of thoughts. You know, that's interesting, too, because it seems like some of the academic research on negotiation related to the anchoring bias is like, I want to go first and let me, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you, uh, you know, I'm going to anchor with what I want. And this mirror technique, it seems like it's, it's more, it's like a great information finder. It's a great information finder. It really is. I mean, it's a it's an expander. Um, and it, one of the reasons why it's so much better than what do you mean by that? Like typically, if somebody says something and you say, well, what do you mean by that? They repeat it with the exact same words, only louder. It's like an American overseas. Which way is the Eiffel Tower? You know, <laughs> just saying it louder. But but that's just a misunderstanding. And and I really need you to rephrase it. And, and as the expander word that used a moment ago, it's a great conversation expander. And the other side loves to be married. Okay, how about the labeling technique? How do you use the labeling technique? Well, you've done a very effective labeling throughout this conversation. And I don't know if you're doing it on purpose <laughs> or just you're a really good listener, but the labeling is just saying it seems like in front of any observation, verbal observation. It can be an observation about dynamic or emotion. There's a, a variety of, uh, there's some variations. It seems like, you seem like, it sounds like, you sound like. It feels like, it looks like, it's a verbal observation. And then there's some slight adjustments to, you know, anticipating in advance. I'll go from it seems like you might find me disrespectful to you're probably going to find me disrespectful. Those are variations of uh, observing a negative emotion as it exists now or as it may exist in the future. But uh, a label is just a verbal observation. We toyed with it a lot. <clears throat> you know, there were eight hostage negotiation skills when I came out of the FBI and, and my son Brandon and I worked on them extensively together while we were teaching at Georgetown. And we wanted to call it something else. It was emotion labels and hostage negotiation. And we tried to describe it, is it a probe? Is it a ping? You know, what's another term? Because it does probe. Mm -hmm. And we use the term ping because it's like sonar, like trying to sound out to the other side where something is and sonar works on sound by pinging the other side. And we finally just dropped the term emotion and just called it labels. I know when I'm talking and somebody effectively labels what I'm saying, I just like want to keep talking, right? Yeah. And yeah, it's Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, well, there's something interesting about it. It stimulates thought. And I heard uh, an interview, Sam Harris, I think, referred to emotion as a species of reason, which I thought was an interesting characterization. But labeling stimulates your thought. It stimulates the other side's thought. Um, there's a lot of really interesting dynamics about how what makes labels effective that I can't completely define. I just know it works really well. And what I love about it is it applies in negotiation, but you can use it in virtually every single conversation that's going to help people feel heard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's it's kind of unlimited. So that phrase, you know, it, it seems like, da, 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 great phrase. What are some of your other phrases that you really like to use when negotiating? You know, relying uh, uh, labels or version labels an awful lot. Um, you know, the first way of me saying no is going to be how am I supposed to do that? That's the opening phrase 
in their first story and never split the difference. You know, that that gets deployed a lot of how or what question, how am I supposed to do that? Works on a variety of levels uh, for a variety of reasons, but it's the first way I say no. And maybe the second way I say no, if how am I supposed to do that hasn't got through to you, I'm, I'm gonna say, look, I'm sorry, it just doesn't work for me. And the academics like um, social criteria or outside criteria, as a rule for rejection or acceptance. And I'm sorry, it doesn't work for me. Uh, that doesn't work for me. It relies on no criteria at all. And it's it's effective in salary negotiations. Because, for example, your company trying to hire somebody. There may be a market rate for a salary that you just can't afford. Now, you're providing somebody with a great future. But in the moment, for a variety of reasons, you, you can't pay the salary. I'm sorry that doesn't work for me. I'm sorry it doesn't work for us. You can't change the fact as an employer that you don't have the salary bandwidth in the moment. What an employer is really, I think, obligated to do is offer somebody a better future. Now, if you were to go to outside criteria, that puts that employer out of the game. And so the outside criteria doesn't change your circumstance. Whenever you're a buyer, you got a set amount of money. The issue isn't whether or not outside criteria should force you to pay more or less. And so I'm sorry, I just can't do that is a genuine way to express that something doesn't work for you and you're not about to be taken hostage by outside criteria that just doesn't apply. Yeah. Do you ever laugh when you say, you know, how am I supposed to do that? Or what tone are you using when you deliver that? Well, I might, you know, uh, it's got to be my read in the moment. Like if, if, if you're, if you're really crushing the first time I might say, how am I supposed to do that? As if like, come on. And if that doesn't get through to you, I may laugh when I say it because I'm trying to trigger a different part of your brain. Maybe you're under a tremendous amount of pressure. Maybe you're really locked into something. Maybe you feel desperate. My, if my calming voice hasn't worked and I can't get your brain to open up into collaboration, then I may come back and, and laugh at it. Uh, not in a derogatory way, but you know, in a laughing with you kind of way, which I'm always going to want to communicate collaboration. Interesting. Always. Um, now, whether or not you want to go along with me is not going to change whether or not I'm going to communicate that I'm open to it. That, that that phrase that you just said, you always want to signal collaboration. To me, that gets at the heart of why so many people are anxious about negotiation because they view it as a win-loss competition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then as soon as you open up your mindset, I mean, never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. Yeah. And, you know, by definition, it's an asymmetric world. By definition, there's something the other side has that you don't know. That if you find out, it could change the complexion of everything. And that's why I'm always going to want to signal collaboration. That's why no matter what I think of the win-lose proposition, I'm operating on inadequate, imperfect information. There's something I don't know. And that's why it's really hard. Win-lose means that you can define the objective. And if you don't have all the information, you can't define the objective. Yeah. So you, you really got to stay out of the win-lose mindset because it costs you money. And the frame of collaboration, framing it that way, it becomes this exercise in creativity and problem solving where there's two of us working together. And I think for many people, I think that would reduce a lot of the anxiety and help them have not only a more enjoyable experience, but also increase the odds that they get to a better outcome. I agree completely. I, I completely. So what advice do you have for people negotiating their salary? I, I get this question a lot from my undergrads. You know, they get their first job offer and they say, How, what, what do I do? How, should I negotiate this? How do I negotiate it? What advice would you have for those students? Well, negotiate success. First of all, negotiate success in a moment. And secondly, negotiate success for your future. And then, then you talk about compensation afterwards. Now, there's a, a very good friend of mine uh, who's a CEO of an international bank. I mean, and he and I both started out ground zero in Iowa, same place, 
no family connections, no alumni connections, nothing. And the phrase that he's always used in every job negotiation, whether it be his annual appraisal or whether for a new job is, how can I be guaranteed to be engaged in, pro in projects that are critical to our strategic future? Hmm. And the other side always goes like, whoa, holy cow. This is like guy that. wants to play in a big game. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's not about salary. So it's about you. I mean, you got to want to, you got to want to play in a big game. You got to have an appetite. You know, the phrase pressure makes diamonds means you got to want to be a diamond. You got to want to go the tough route. You don't want to be lazy. And then if you're really willing to put yourself in that position and at, at least you gain visibility with the top echelon of the company, and that's negotiating your future. Now negotiating your present. What does it take to be successful here? That's the question to ask the people that are interviewing. Not what are you looking for in a candidate? Because there's a difference. There's a difference between what are they looking for in a candidate for this job? And what does it take to be successful in a company? And that's why you can talk about a job in the mailroom. But you're looking to get to the top echelons of the company. What's the culture here? What does it really take to be successful? And you may be applying for a job in a mailroom. And, and I'm using that phrase specifically because my company's hiring kind of on a philosophy now because the top entertainment companies in Hollywood, um, the Ari Emanuels, uh, the guys that are all leading those companies, they started in a mailroom. And they learned from the ground up and they had the appetite to come in and work hard and learn from the ground up and learn the culture of what real success looks like. And so what does it take to be successful in a mailroom versus what does it take to be successful here? Those are two different questions. Okay. So I, I love this framework of negotiate the future, negotiate the present. You've gone through those questions. Do you have a, a good question for you know, like, can I have a raise? <laughs> That's probably not the phrase you're going to use, right? Do you have a good way to phrase that idea of, you know, can I be compensated more? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, at the very beginning, you're going to start to ask, ask about success. Because you're going to have to, you're going to have to find out how amenable they are to your successful future. Uh, now, every, every company has a range that they're hiring you within initially. Mm -hmm. And you're going to want to find out what that range is. Now, at this point in time, there's a bit of this that's very impersonal. There ain't nothing personal. They're going to come in at the low end. And they've got a range. And so get out of asking about specific numbers and say, look, you, you know, it seems like you guys have a range. You know, what's your range? People are much more willing to talk about ranges than they are about specific numbers. So you're trying to open up the conversation to find out where they are. And then you're going to want to, you're going to want to, you're going to want them to get a productive employee and they don't want an employee that's going to fail due to their anxiety over being underpaid. And how does, how does that, how does that translate into the negotiation? And no one to question, do you guys want me to be worried about being underpaid and have it interfere with my performance? You know, the answer to that is no. You're trying to open up the conversation to find out what the ranges are. Yeah. Now, sure. then once you get in, you're going to be looking at, assuming you don't get fired, assuming that you do your job, assuming that everybody was open and honest with each other and you're hiring, you got a one-year review coming up a year from now. What does it take to be successful here? How can I be involved in critical projects? You're laying the groundwork for your, for your next conversation about your raise the following year. When you walk in, be prepared to have a discussion for the value, not just that you contributed over the past year, but again, what you plan on contributing over the future. If I sit down with an employee of mine and they start telling me about have, making a case based on past contributions, well, my emotional reaction is, first of all, it was a team contribution. You didn't do it by yourself. You were successful based on the environment that I put you in, the team I surrounded you with. Plus, we're kind of even. We had an agreement yeah. at the beginning of the year that you were going to do X. And I, if you did X, I was going to compensate you for X. So we're kind of dead even here. Now let's talk about what you're going to contribute for the future. 
you start outlining. Now, you've made a legitimate case, first of all, in a value you brought to the table over the coming year. You should make that case anyway, even though my reaction is going to be we're kind of even here. You do need to remind your boss that you, he wanted an A, an, a, an a plus performer and you were an A plus performer. Now the conversation is what does an A plus, plus performer's contribution look like over the coming year? Now I'm open to that conversation. You know, as long as you're worth well more to me than what I paid you, there's kind of no limit on what I could pay you. And if you realize that I got to pay for your team and I got to pay for your resources, and you got to be worth more to me than I pay you. But as long as you keep raising a bar on how much you're worth to me, you put me in a position to pay you. And I need you to put me in a position to pay you more. And I need you to be worth more in order so I can do that. Yeah, I love this approach of being thoughtful about the words we use and uh, thinking about kind of the long-term effects of uh, our decisions and the words we're using. And then, uh, You've you've said something that I thought was quite interesting. Speaking of kind of phrases, I've heard you say that you would try to intentionally uh, get people to say no. And what do you mean by that? And how does that work? Yeah, well, the emotional intelligence reality of the words yes and no. If I try to get you to say yes, it's going to create anxiety. You're going to wonder what you're letting yourself in for. You're going to wonder what the hook is. Which, can I just interrupt you there? You know, the one of the most popular books on negotiation is Getting to Yes. And and so, the you know, some of the research is like, you want to get people to say yes, you know, get them saying yes, 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 yes. And and, and that's how you get a good negotiation. And, and so your approach is different. Yeah, it's okay. called the yes momentum or momentum selling. And it refers to each yes as a micro agreement or a tie down. Yeah. Therefore, cornering the other person and putting them in a position where they have to say yes to the big yes. And that is is so worn out and <laughs> so overdone that people are yes battered everywhere. And, and the fascinating thing is those that practice the yes momentum, they, they want to hear it. They hate saying it. Like I can take the same person and I'll say, OK, so the phone rings. And a voice on the other end of the line says, have you got a few minutes to talk? What's your gut reaction? And universally, people go like, no. Yeah. What's this about? What are you trying to get out of me? Like the reaction, yes, depends upon what side of the word you're on. We love to hear it. We hate to say it. So the emotional dynamic is, if I try to get you to say yes, you're going to feel anxious. And it's going to cloud your thinking. So what happens if I try to get you to say no? You're going to feel safe and protected, and it's going to clear your thinking. And we've seen that be an utterly true dynamic over and over and over again. So which side of the word you're on, I want to be on the side of that word that gives me the emotional intelligence advantage. And I know I get the advantage of you feeling safe and protected when you say no. So how do you phrase a question to get people to say no? You know, it's ridiculously easy once you get over your fear of hearing no. Have you got a few minutes to talk can turn into is now a bad time to talk. Mm -hmm. Do you disagree is do you disagree? Is this look like something that works for you can turn into does this something does this sound like a ridiculous idea? Is this a ridiculous idea? Um, we, you know, one of our blog posts, we actually, we took the top 10 no oriented questions. We took the 10 most common yes questions and just turned them into no-oriented questions. It kind of, with a little bit of practice, it becomes pretty easy to flip from yes to no. If you can, when you get over the initial horror of the word, then it just becomes an automatic. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, you know, is this a ridiculous idea? It's, it's kind of like with that gate agent. A, a little bit of that same idea. It seems like it's kind of related. You know, you, you're not going to want to help me. Like, no, no, no. I want to help you, right? Like, yeah. Kind of that same idea. Well, uh, it's probably time to wrap up, but maybe one last question. And this is, it's, it's kind of a big question, but you've learned a lot about negotiation. You've taught a lot about negotiation. If you were to say, if you were to think, you know, what lesson about negotiation would I most want to pass on to future generations? What, what lesson would that be? Uh, and, you know, and I love that question. And right after, if I, I can't, I like to throw out how people could follow up my company. 
But the real lesson for generations is you're going to be more prosperous being collaborative than you ever will be cutthroat. Like the cutthroat stuff in the moment is exciting. You know, you hear the band play in those winds, you know, you hear the crowds cheering. It's very exciting to get that cutthroat victory. People cling to those negotiations for years because they don't have that many of them. You know, I had them over a barrel. The number of times I've heard that, and that human being has one negotiation story over a 10 year frame. And the people, the, our top clients, are telling us, I made more money being collaborative than I ever made being cutthroat. I was good being cutthroat. Being collaborative is really where the long-term prosperity is and a lot more happiness for you and your family across the board. Collaborative is, is, is the moneymaker. Long-term greed is Gus Levy from Goldman Sachs would have said a long time ago, be collaborative because it makes you more money. Love that, Chris. Collaborative over cutthroat. Well, this has just been so fun for me. Like I said, uh, you were, when it was time for me to teach my negotiation class, you know, they say uh, the, the key to being a, a professor is to pretend like the thing you learned that morning is something you've known your whole life. When I was teaching those MBA students my very first time, you know, the things I was learning from you were, were things I was uh, teaching them, um, pretending like I'd known forever. I've learned more today from you. I always love learning from you. Uh, so I just want to thank you for sharing these lessons in your time with me. And I'm already excited to listen to this interview again. All right, cool. And and, and I, I like to do the follow-up if I can, please. I know this, I know this is very shameless. Um, we've got a newsletter. Uh, it's free, but what makes it better is it's concise and it's actionable. It comes out via email. If you just go to our website, blackswanltd.com, B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. You'll see a tab in the upper right-hand corner if you don't get the pop-up box right away to sign up for The Edge, our newsletter. It gets emailed to you on Tuesday morning. It's a gateway to everything we have. There's an actionable article and uh, concise, about seven or 800 words. You get on Tuesday morning, you put it into action that day. And then all the latest developments, all the latest training, you get notified about those also. And it's just a gateway to the gold mine. And just to piggyback on that, there's so much to learn. And you have so many great techniques and strategies and ideas. You know, this was just the tip of the iceberg today. So I just, I, I want to, I fully support you in this and, and just would encourage people that want to learn more about this because, well, first, we should all want to learn more about negotiation because we're constantly negotiating. And, and once you kind of see the world through that frame, you can't unsee it. And there's so much to learn. And, and so I would just encourage listeners to do that. So thank you, Chris. Amen. Thanks for having me on. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes with one of the world's greatest negotiation coaches. Chris packed so much wisdom into this interview. I'd like to recap some of his main ideas. For most negotiations, use either a playful, upbeat tone or the late night FM DJ voice, and smile a bunch. Oprah may be the greatest negotiator of all time, yet people still like her. Women pick up tactical empathy better than men, but also they are punished more than men for bad negotiating. Extreme anchors have the tendency of driving deals away from the table. If you routinely win too big in negotiations, people may stop dealing with you. Prepare people for bad news with phrases like, you're probably not going to like this. This phrase is way better than, not to be rude. Conduct an accusation audit. Imagine the negative thoughts your counterparty has about you and proactively address them. Use the mirror technique. Repeat the last three to five words of what somebody just said. This is often received much better than, what do you mean? Use the labeling technique. After your counterparty speaks, label what they said by using phrases such as, it seems like dot dot dot, or it sounds like dot dot dot. Use no-oriented questions. Have you got a few minutes to talk can be changed to, is now a bad time to talk? Or, can I have the day off can be changed to, is it ridiculous to ask for tomorrow off? When negotiating salary, first negotiate success. Use questions like, how can I be guaranteed to be engaged in projects that are critical to our strategic future? And Chris's final message, you're going to be more prosperous being collaborative than cutthroat. What simple, practical, underappreciated ideas from Chris. Please take them seriously.
Nate Mickle here with a couple requests. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star review on your podcast player. Lastly, if you're like me and want to remember all of the lessons shared in previous episodes, visit the list of lessons page on my website, natemickle.com, to see all of the lessons that each previous guest has shared. Thanks for your support.